President Biden's handling of the gun issue takes another hit in the polls, and an interview with Top Shot champion Chris Chen. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can get a membership today if you want to get the podcast a day early and exclusive access to content that you can't get without the membership. Head on over to TheReload.com to check out our deals today. If you buy an annual membership, you get two months for free. So that's a good deal, right? Uh, this week, we do not have contributing writer Jake Fogelman with us. He is on vacation, uh, attending a wedding. Uh, and I still, I still feel like when I say that it sounds weird contributing writer. I, I just can't, I can't get past that. It's, it's, uh, it's like a weird, it's, it sounds weird to me in my brain. Uh, I think ever since I watched mayor of East town, uh, which takes place in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is, uh, where, where my dad's side of the family lives. Uh, in fact, my stepmother's name is also Mayor, so she's Mayor of Mayor of Springfield, not the Mayor of Springfield. She's Mayor of Springfield, uh, but yeah, I I can feel the accent coming through it at times, and and I think even other people don't uh, necessarily recognize it like I do in my own mind, in my <laughs> my own inner monologue. I, I recognize it, and, and it uh, freaks me out a little bit sometimes. Just after watching that show where the uh, the accent, the hoagie mouth is like hardcore. <laughs> but anyway, this week we uh, have Top Shot's Chris Chang on to talk about his uh, activism, uh, his new Asian American gun rights group that he's a part of and the Supreme Court brief that they filed, as well as uh, NFT firearms. That'll be interesting. So uh, make sure you stay tuned to listen to that. But first... Let's discuss the news of the week, starting with the president's polling numbers continuing to fall on the issue of guns. A new poll from The Economist and YouGov shows that Biden's approval rating when it comes to how he has implemented his gun policies or failed to implement them or, or what have you, I guess both, if you look at his record thus far, uh, is, is down about I think it's 10 points from uh, June, which is remarkable because June was also down significantly from May when he had previously uh, done a poll or when the Associated Press had previously done a poll on this same question. They had found uh, in May 48 percent uh, approval of Biden's handling of guns and 49% disapproval, this new YouGov poll finds that a majority disapprove of, handle, of his handling, including a plurality that strongly disapproves, uh, whereas only 8% of people uh, strongly approve of the president's handling of guns. Uh, his disapproval rating is up 5% from when YouGov did the poll in June and down 10% uh, in terms of uh, approval since that same poll. So things are not looking good. The disapproval is driven largely by Republicans uh, and independents, but at the same time, Democrats 
don't even approve of the president's handling of guns. They don't. And a majority of Democrats don't. Uh, he, he has not reached a majority level of approval from even his own party on his handling of guns. Uh, and so he's got problems across the political landscape when it comes to guns. That uh, poll comes after he was forced to pull his ATF nominee who uh, was, you know, worked for gun control groups for much of his career after he left the ATF uh, over the last uh, decade or so. He worked directly for Giffords and now has gone back to working directly for them. And Biden could not get the 50 votes necessary to confirm him to the position. Is only the second nominee who hasn't gotten through. And in fact, he just had another nominee go through uh, this week uh, with uh, on party line vote with 50 votes in the Senate and a tiebreaker from the vice president. But he could not accomplish that for his ATF director nominee, who, in addition to being a uh, paid gun control activist, uh, has also been accused of making racist comments and uh, attempting to derail a black agent's career over what the black agent claims was uh, racial animus. Uh, accused him of cheating on a promotion assessment. Uh, the black agent says because Shipman believed he had done too well on a section of that test. Uh, the agent said, of course, that his name was later cleared uh, the Department of uh, Justice confirmed parts of the agent's story, but also denied that Chipman has any sort of racial animus. Um, but Chipman himself has, has never commented on the allegations. But in addition to losing that fight, Biden has also faced an extreme uphill battle in Congress over his advocacy to pass an assault weapons ban and a universal background check bill um, and a number of other priorities. He has made no progress on that and it doesn't look likely he will make any progress on that soon. So there may be some on the gun control side of the aisle who are upset with the president uh, and his performance on guns thus far. At the same time, the president has also pushed through uh, a number of unilateral actions to restrict the sale of guns um, and to increase the power of the ATF. Uh, in particular, he's done two rules that he's putting through the federal rulemaking process that one would, which would expand the definition of what constitutes a firearm so that the ATF could uh, effectively make illegal unfinished gun parts, uh, especially if they're sold in kits uh, which you know, the president and other advocates for stricter gun control have uh, uh, termed go uh, ghost guns. And he's pushed through that proposal. And then the second proposal that deals with pistol braces on AR-15 style rifles uh, and other uh, firearms as well, which he is effectively trying to outlaw millions of those guns uh, with a rulemaking process. Both of these proposals have continued to move forward despite receiving hundreds of thousands of negative public comments during the rulemaking process. And so it's likely that much of President Biden's 
disapproval on guns comes from people who are upset about both of those things as well. It seems the president is likely getting it from all sides on this issue at the moment. Uh, but the other story I wanted to talk about relates to uh, the ATF nominee as well, David Chipman, uh, who was pulled by the president this month or in September, uh, did his first exclusive interview since failing to be confirmed to the position. He spoke with the New York Times, who completely <laughs> skipped the allegations of racism made against him, as well as the other complaints that ATF agents had about Chipman, uh, including his adversarial approach towards the gun industry, which many ATF agents have said could damage the uh, agency's ability to work with people in the industry to make their cases. Uh, oftentimes, ATF agents will work with federally licensed gun dealers on uh, tips that lead to arrests in gun trafficking cases or other sorts of federal gun crime investigations. And by taking an approach like Chipman has, which has been very inflammatory in terms of how he has categorized the gun industry uh, since leaving the ATF a decade ago, that could hinder any sort of cooperation that's going on there. And that was a common critique that you heard from ATF agents, uh, several of which were talked to the reload exclusively back in July for uh, you know story on Chipman's nomination. Uh, and then you also had a letter from seven former agents, uh, several of which who worked with Chipman directly, the, that made many of the same points. Uh, in the New York Times article, though, you would not know this because they mainly follow, frankly, the narrative set forth in a Giffords press release from several weeks ago, which made these complaints out to be exclusively those of the gun industry or the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the gun industry's trade group, and painted those concerns as only being shared by the gun industry itself, which, of course, the gun industry does have those concerns. But frankly, ATF agents who have spoken out about David Chipman's nomination, all of them have had negative things to say about him, or at least about his nomination. Some of them have positive things to say about him personally, but still don't believe he should be the director. And now he won't be. But it's interesting to watch how the New York Times and frankly, many other major media outlets have treated allegations of racism levied against Chipman by effectively ignoring them altogether. They have not produced anything that claims that they are not legitimate allegations, that they haven't been backed up with evidence. Again, the Department of Justice confirmed the black agent's story that he was subject, that Chipman initiated an investigation into an agent for cheating on a promotion assessment uh, in the time frame that the black agent had suggested this had happened. So there is corroboration for these allegations. Uh, additionally, another agent confirmed that he was told about the situation at the time that it happened. 
And there's a, are a number uh, of things that give credence to what this agent has claimed, including the fact that uh, Senator Grassley's office, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, has uh, produced a whistleblower report on their own, independent of the Reloads reporting on this exact allegation. But it has been almost entirely ignored, and Chipman was not asked about it during his exclusive interview with the New York Times. Uh, reporter Glenn Thrush there did the interview, did described it as far-ranging, but did not range far enough to ask whether or not he denied the allegation that he attempted to sideline a black agent's career over racial animus. So it seems once again that if you want to know about what is happening in D.C. with gun policy, unfortunately uh, for you, perhaps fortunately for me, I guess, the only place you're going to get all of that information is from the reload. I don't believe, frankly, that this story would ever have seen the light of day without the reload doing the reporting necessary to bring it to light in an ethical and forthright manner that follows the principles of good journalism and just not hide <laughs> inconvenient claims about important and powerful people. So if you want to support our reporting, you can do that by joining today. We are 100% reader funded. We do not have any shady backers. We are not funded by any of the gun groups on either side of the issue. We are not owned by any major corporation like most major media outlets are. We get our funding from you. And that's it. That's the only place that we get funding. These are the only ads we have on this podcast. Maybe that will change in the future. Maybe we'll get some advertising too to supplement uh, our revenue. But as things stand now, 100% completely reader funded. This story would not have seen the light of day. I can guarantee it without the reload's existence. And frankly, <laughs> it's the other colleagues in media appear to be trying to bury this story Anyway, David Shipman is uh, not only still being considered for a role in the administration, according to Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, at a press conference this week, but he is now back with Giffords in a full-time role there, apparently without having to ever even comment on whether or not these allegations have any truth to them. Because... Places like the New York Times will not ask him about that. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> and I think it's time we move on to the interview for this week's episode with Chris Chang. So take it away, me in the past, future, whenever I, relative to now, it was the past that I filmed it, but you'll be hearing it in the future. Here we go. We are here with... Uh, former Top Shop champion, Chris Chang, uh, who is now a leading gun rights activist as well. Uh, Chris, can you tell us just a little bit more about your background? Give our audience uh, just a bit about who you are, people who might have not heard of you in, uh, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, my, my career actually started in tech uh, at Google. Um, and, you know, I was a self-taught amateur who occasionally went to the range 
And uh, my life changed, though, when this show called Top Shot on the History Channel started airing in 2010. And, you know, I, I was watching my favorite TV show every week and seeing these incredible competitors from all walks of life, from all corners of the country, come and shoot some amazing guns and compete in these incredible challenges. And I got this crazy idea of auditioning for season four. And long story short, you know, I, I trained really hard because I was so behind the curve and all of my hard effort and training paid off. And I won $100,000 in a professional shooting contract with Bass Pro Shops. And it changed my life. Uh, it'll probably be forever. You know, my life will never be the same. And I'm very thankful for that change because, you know, I, I learned I have learned so much about gun culture about the Second Amendment and, and have come to appreciate many elements of, of both. And I'm also still in tech. So, you know, I, I get to uh, have fun with tech toys and then I get to shoot guns and have fun nice. with, with guns as well. And so, uh, yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you and, and uh, your listeners yeah, today. Yeah, absolutely. And and from that uh, opportunity, from, from the show, uh, you actually have uh, – gotten into the gun rights community as well. You've spoken before Congress uh, as a witness and, you know, in, in gun control uh, bills that during markup, uh, even just recently, even this year. And, uh, you know, you've, you've been involved with some of the uh, biggest gun rights organizations uh, in the country. And now you're actually a, an advisor to uh, a group, uh, a relatively new group called uh, that, that, that focuses on Asian American uh, gun owners in particular. Uh, and now that group uh, has has started to uh, become more active too. And, and in fact, you just had one of your first training uh, events, right? And and, and you, uh, the group filed a uh, an amicus brief in the Supreme Court's gun carry case. Uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been such an exciting time. Uh, so the group is called APA GOA, mm -hmm. stands for Asian Pacific American. Gun Owners Association, and our core focus is on safety, education, and community. We are we we aspire to be a big tent organization, right? So it's, it's, it's we're apolitical. We want to really zero in and focus on bread and butter gun safety education. And you know, after about you know almost two years now of racist attacks against Asian Americans. There are so many APAs in the country that are looking for information on gun usage, on safe gun handling, how do you buy your first firearm. And some of the more kind of traditional uh, Second Amendment and gun safety outlets uh, are, are not necessarily meeting the needs of APAs throughout the country. Um, I, I think what's been, I think, fascinating for me is – Clearly, I'm Asian. Right. Right. <laughs> for anyone listening never, who's not aware, I guess yeah, yeah. Uh, you can. Yeah, for anyone people who's on YouTube watching, yeah, can last figure name. that out probably. But uh. <laughs> yeah, but if you're just listening to the audio, yeah, last name Chang is, is Chinese. I'm actually half Japanese mm. as well. Um, and you know, uh, I, I grew up in Southern California, where race was something that I've always been aware of. Right? That yes, I'm Asian, but it's it's never been something that I've felt the need to talk about because I've always just thought to myself, well, it's obvious I'm Asian uh, and I don't know, like what's what's there to talk about? 
But, you know, the past year and a half or two has really changed me where, you know, I, I live in San Francisco and, you know, back, uh, you know, earlier, uh, earlier in the year, you know, there have been, been these attacks, particularly against elderly Asian Americans, mm -hmm. you know, here in San Francisco, in New York City, and some of these victims have died. And I have extended family here in San Francisco that are in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And these are the same ages of, of victims that are being attacked and, and sometimes gravely injured and killed. And that just it just you know triggered something in me and said, OK, look, you know, I, I have not really addressed my Asian American heritage. And up until this point in my life, it hasn't really been relevant. But this has been a key driver of why I wanted to be on the founding board of APAGOA is a way of establishing a nonprofit organization that is there for the APA community. And we're not exclusive, right? So you don't have to be APA, right, to join APAGOA, right? If it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, just, you know, we, we, we have a lot of allies, right, across the, uh, the, the ethnic spectrum. And what I think, though, if we, if we start double-clicking, right, into, well, what is APAGOA wanting to do that is unique and, and impactful? One thing that I'm very excited about is translation. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of Asian Americans who, who you know, don't speak English as a first language, who can't read or write English uh, very well, necessarily. And, you know, to be very frank and transparent, like I used to come from a place where if you live in America, you should speak English. You should learn how to read and write English. And if you don't, that's sort of at your own detriment. But when it comes to the sanctity of life and the concept of self-defense and the Second Amendment, I don't believe that language barriers should get in the way of somebody defending themselves with a firearm. Right, so my, 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 my mental paradigm has totally shifted. Um, and what I, I hope and what I think is a way that is more open, that's more thoughtful and empathetic around immigrants, right, who are here legally, right? But if they don't, if they, again, if they don't speak English very well or, um, or, if, if, or if they just don't at all, how do we still help the, that significant part of our population learn how to shoot a gun? If they're interested in buying a gun for self-defense, how do you fill out the 4473 background check form if it's all in English? Right. Can you have a translator there with you? Does that mean it's a straw purchase, though, if you have somebody there who's right translating this you know, government form for you? Right? There's a lot of these kind of questions that I don't think have been really addressed head on by any particular group or organization. So I'm excited that APA GOA, right, that we, we you know, will be a, a group and hopefully there'll be other groups, right, who can help shine the light on this part of, of, of America's population that, again, doesn't necessarily speak English, uh, but, but they should still have the right right, to defend themselves with a firearm, right, if they're an American citizen or if they're a resident or a green Certainly. card holder. And uh, the other uh, thing you guys have done recently that's that's pretty impactful or, or, uh, or new, I think it's unique <clears throat> actually to uh, to, AA, uh, to APA GOA 
which is filing a brief with the Supreme Court in the gun carry case there. Uh, obviously, you guys are uh, a lot of your members are in California, right? I think that's where the group is based. And California has a May issue law that could be impacted by the Supreme Court's uh, ruling on New York's May issue law. Uh, and so you guys, I believe, are the only Asian-American organization uh, that filed a brief in that case. So can you just give us a little rundown of what uh, the view of the organization is about uh, that case? What do you want to see happen? Yeah. So, you know, with the Supreme Court case, right, that's going through and asking the question, does the Second Amendment apply outside of the home and specifically with regards to CCW and, you know, may issue you know, versus shall issue for, for, for APA GOA? Right, this is very much about maximizing the freedom of choice for individuals to decide whether they want to own a firearm or not outside the home, right? And, and whether you want a CCW is a very personal, you know, question and personal decision. But but it, it should be a choice, right? It should be a choice. And the fact that it is not an equal choice in every part of our country is a huge problem, right? My rights here in California are, and specifically here in San Francisco County, are severely restricted compared to other parts of the country where you have constitutional carry, right? You don't even need to, right, apply for a CCW. So this disparity of freedom is something that I, I think it's it, it comes down to the equal opportunity of exercising our civil rights, no matter where you live in our country. And this goes beyond Asian Americans, right, in that regard. But specifically with the amicus brief, you know, we 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 got connected to uh, an amazing uh, legal firm uh, and the lead attorney for the amicus brief. His name is Albert Lynn. He's the former solicitor general of West Virginia. And he and his team gave the APA GOA leadership team a crash course in amicus briefs because, you know, I've never submitted one. Like I've read about the process, you know, from a distance, you know, hearing about other gun rights groups submit amicus briefs, right, and for other cases in the past. And what I think is really unique and distinctive about APA GOA's brief is the approach that we took to it, which was a very personal one. The, the, the brief is filled with personal anecdotes of Asian Pacific Americans across the country that were negatively impacted by the pandemic, negatively impacted by violence that came upon them and their families, and how the Supreme Court's decision on this case could have a tremendously positive impact, right, and change their lives. And so, you know, what's, what's amazing about the amicus brief process is you have, uh, it seems like maybe, what, 60, 70 different orgs submitted briefs. Oh, yeah, um, quite a lot, yeah. It, it's quite a lot, right? And at a high level, right, we're, we're all sort of asking ourselves a question, how do we make our briefs stand out? How do we make them compelling? And for us, you know, we really wanted to lean into the personal anecdotes that we have been hearing. And, and, and these anecdotes are why we formed APA GOA in the first mm -hmm. place, right? We, we've just been hearing, you know, myself included from, from Asian Americans who were pissed off 
we're, we're scared, we're upset, we're angry, but we're also determined to protect ourselves and to protect our communities. And, and so this brief really leans into a lot of that emotion and into those, those personal stories, which I guess surprisingly, if you look at the other briefs, a lot of briefs uh, are, let me just say, um, other briefs lean into other, right, impactful arguments, sure. right, legal arguments, like socioeconomic and like other cultural arguments. Um, but I would say APAGOA's brief you know, is unique in that we're one of the only, if not one of the few, you know, briefs that really, really wanted to have a narrative and, and a vibrant, impactful storytelling focus for our brief. And hopefully our brief will make a difference when the final decision comes out here, either later this year or next Certainly. year. Certainly. Uh, and I think that segues well or dovetails well with uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is uh, there was this recent report from the Violence Policy uh, Center, which uh, focuses on how, I guess, uh, they're claiming that the gun industry has uh, attempted to sell firearms to Asian Americans. Uh, and of course, this is a, a gun control group that we're, we're talking about here. And, and so they take a very negative view, uh, to say the least, to put it lightly, of, of uh, the attempts to uh, I guess, recruit more gun owners from the Asian American community. In fact, they mention you by name in this report uh, as, uh, you know, somebody who's been involved in uh, encouraging Asian Americans to get uh, to, to become gun owners. And uh, they, they paint this all as a very negative thing. Uh, they, they claim that this will lead to uh, more violence uh, if more Asian Americans uh, purchase guns or own guns. Then there will be an increase in in, in violence or, or suicide as well uh, in the community, uh, and I just wanted to get your reaction to that, uh, your your take on what they have to say. You know, when the study, uh, you know, quote unquote study, you know, came out last week, um, I was just my, my jaw dropped on the floor reading through a ton of inaccuracies, and it was just really biased. By, it was a biased study against Asian Americans, and what I, what I, let me just like start drilling down on some of these points, right? The the whole notion that uh, you know it, it, buying a gun right increases the risk of like injury or death, like that is such a lazy intellectual argument for me, and the reason why I say that is. Of course, right? If you introduce a, a, some sort of, you know, a, a dangerous item right into your home or into your life, of course, like your, your level of risk will in, you know, of injury or death will increase. But then what's missing is there are ways to manage that right. risk, right? Sort so of like, uh, with like firearms, if you put a pool in your yard, uh, you know, the, there's obviously higher risk of accidents with the pool, um, but yeah, it doesn't. Or it doesn't buying a car, hurt, yeah, or a car, right? sure, certainly. If you buy a car, of course, right, you're at your chances of getting into a car accident or get, and getting injured or killed in a car accident are going to increase. But there are ways, right, that we manage right. that risk, right, for everything in our lives. So you know that that part of the study, um, you know, they use that as sort of the bedrock. Mm -hmm. Of the study, it was in the first, you know, opening paragraph, yeah. and it's uh, it's a very common talking point from gun control groups. Obviously, that 
that uh, guns are inherently dangerous and uh, they sort of take the agency out of away from the gun owner in, in whenever they talk about things in this way, uh, as though just owning a gun is automatically going to make you more suicidal or more violent in some way. And that's obviously right. not uh, true. It, it, exactly. It's not the case. Right. And so they, they make another argument saying that the firearms industry neglects this risk and we never talk about, you know, how to reduce the risk, which is absolutely false. It's absolutely false. You know, there's groups like APA GOA, like the NRA, you know, Second Amendment Foundation, Firearms Policy Coalition, right? You, the, the list goes on and on where we always emphasize safety, safe storage. You know, the, the, the notion in the study, basically, you know, they're accusing me and, and the firearms industry of trying to uh, encourage every Asian American to buy a gun. And, and no, like that, that is literally not what I am saying. And that's not what I've said. What I am saying is I want to encourage Asian Americans to consider purchasing a firearm or learning how to use one and making your own personal decision then whether this is something for you. And that something for you comes with responsibility around understanding safe storage, understanding that you need to train. Let me tell you a very quick story. You know, there's, I, I've, I've told a number of friends and family to not buy a gun. And the reason why I've, I've, I've told them that is because they did not want to spend the money or the time on training, right? They thought that simply buying a firearm would make them safer. Now, to be frank, right? Like, yeah, hey, if you just buy a firearm thinking it's going to make you safer, no, it, that, that firearm will be a liability, right, without proper training around how to safely store and handle and use that firearm. So, you know, this study, I think, conveniently glosses over the fact that Second Amendment, you know, advocates and gun safety advocates like me and, 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 and everybody else who's a gun owner, we're always, always preaching gun safety and, and, and gun education. Yeah. And I, if you read the report, obviously, uh, it makes all everything seem very nefarious, right? Like, like certainly you are encouraging people to uh, become armed if they if they wish to be. And, and you do talk about the way that uh, Asian Americans have been targeted by hate crimes over the last year and a half, because that's all, I mean, a matter of, of record. It's fact that that's happening uh, and that people can, as you described just now, uh, choose to become armed if they are concerned about that rise in violence. Um, and that's not nefarious. Uh, that's the, that's where it really, the disconnect exists for me because they, they, talk about this as though it's a very nefarious thing like it's a uh, you know it's like you've, you've come up in the smoky back rooms and put together a, a strategy with you know ruger or or, or winchester or somebody and uh, to to appeal to asian americans when it's really just like a, a fairly straightforward and uh above board opinion that it, asian americans are being targeted for violence at a higher rate than they used to be and one way to protect yourself in America is by owning firearms, just like any other demographic of people. And in fact, to me, it's a little bit 
uh, weird for them to, you know, they, obviously they, they make these arguments about owning guns generally that no, they, I mean, obviously they don't really think that anybody should own a gun because they think guns uh, are t dangerous and will lead to more uh, violence or, or suicide uh, if you own one. This is the basic concept that Violence Policy Center operates off of all the time. It, but it gets kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, weird and uncomfortable when you start applying it to demographics specifically, saying that like Asian Americans shouldn't own guns because they're dangerous. It's sort of like there's an implication that Asian Americans can't be responsible with firearms. Uh, and I know. Right. Or that we're somehow or that we're somehow going to be dangerous with right. them. And, you know, the I think the, the line that we're flirting with here is right. What, where's the line that this becomes racist? Yeah. And if we think about other races, like and, and with respect to gun control, right, if we talk about the Black Panthers right back in the in the 60s and 70s, you know, here in California, you know, former Governor Reagan implemented some pretty harsh gun control regulations after the Black Panthers went to Sacramento and exercised their open carry rights. And, you know, it's 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 this overlay of. For me, I'm a diversity advocate. Mm -hmm. right? I've spent the past 10 years on the NSSF and NRA's outreach committees advocating for increased outreach to Asians, to Latinos, to the LGBT community. And I believe that diversity everywhere is a good thing. So right for this for this for the study, why is diversity no longer a good right. thing? Right. Like I just I, I take umbrage with that. And also the nefarious piece here that you mentioned, they also try and tie firearms ownership into uh, the, 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 the bad actors in the alcohol and tobacco industries. Like they mentioned this a number of times saying that, you know, the firearms industry is going to start using, you know, uh, a questionable marketing tactics like the alcohol and tobacco industries. Like, no, like this is the, the, the difference is everybody understands how deadly a firearm can be, right? There's there's just no secret, right? There, there's a difference between, right, the tobacco industry back in the day, right, was right, sort of not being totally transparent about, right, how smoking might cause cancer, right, or is a key right. contributor, right, uh, factor, right, to cancer and other, you know, lung disease and other things. But, right, like, there's nothing, there's no smoke and mirrors, right? This is very, this is all transparent. This is literally, we're taking diversity outreach pages from, from other playbooks, right. From, uh, you know, from, from, uh, the LGBT community, from, you know, other, other successful, uh, you know, ethnic groups that, that are reaching out, right. To, to, uh, to people of color. And so why is it now not okay for the firearms industry to reach out to people of color, right? It's, it's again, it sort of flirts with this line of racism. Yeah. I mean, I'm not calling the, the study racist, but right, it, it touches upon right, some of these like somewhat sensitive uh, pieces. And I mean, the study, I, I encourage people to, to read it when you have a chance and just understand. For me, it's about understanding what is the other side constantly uh, advocating or propagating. And I mean, I, some of these are just, I, don't want to call them lies, but it's very misinformed mm -hmm. and I think very slanted and biased viewpoints about gun owners and about guns. And for me, it's important to understand that because then, you know, that makes 
all of us more effective when we're trying to speak for you know for freedom and and, and on behalf of the Second Amendment. Yeah, and and, and I just feel like. You take that argument that guns, because uh, you know, uh, Violence Policy Center. I, I I think that they just have a general belief that nobody should own guns. Frankly, that that it's dangerous for everyone. But when they start drilling down to different demographics and say Asians shouldn't own guns because it's dangerous for Asians to own guns, like yeah, it starts to get into very uncomfortable territory. I would imagine for most people who are listening to arguments like that. I mean, it starts to sound. Uh, sound very, very racist. I mean, I know that that's probably not their intention here, but, but, you know, what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to react when you hear them talk about how Asians shouldn't own guns? Cause it, it's, it'd be dangerous for them to own guns. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I don't know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think that world. their argument is well, very good well. anyway, obviously, like you discussed, like, uh, yes, I think everyone acknowledges that guns are, are dangerous. They're not toys. Right. They're, they're, uh, <clears throat> they, they require a level of safe handling uh, for people to not be harmed by them. But obviously, it's a level that is achievable by every uh, informed adult. So it's not as it's certainly there's no difference between the ability of an Asian American or a black American or a Latino American or a white American to uh, comprehend gun safety rules and handle guns safely. There's no difference. Uh, I mean, uh, between how any adult can, uh, process that information and handle guns safely, uh, men, women, whatever, like anything. And, uh, uh, that's where, you know, trying to make arguments that some community or others shouldn't own guns because they're dangerous is, yeah, I mean, it just starts to get into territory that I doubt that they want to be in. But they put out this report, so <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's their report, and then they're, they, they're, they need to own mm -hmm. it, right? They need to own it uh, along with all the uh, scrutiny and criticism that's, uh, that's going to mm -hmm. come with but, it. But uh, moving away from politics for a moment, uh, you are also in, uh, involved in uh, the NFT space, which is a, a, a sort of brand new burgeoning uh, space. You're, you're seeing NFTs uh, and uh, the blockchain tech, uh, you know, technology generally that has been associated with cryptocurrencies to this point um, and is now moving into things like uh, collectibles and art. And in your case, you're saying that uh, perhaps the next place that it should go is uh, into the firearms community. So can you explain just because obviously a lot of people <laughs> listening probably don't know the first thing about what an NFT is and how it could possibly uh, relate to uh, firearms. Yeah, it's uh, so NFTs, you know, for 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 the uninitiated, uh, it stands for non fungible token. Uh, I, I like to kind of dispense with the technical talk. And I think when you hear the, the, the letters NFT, just think of it as a digital collectible. Mm -hmm. For me, that was the most easiest way to think about what is an NFT, right? So it's a digital collectible. And, uh, just real quick, you've actually seen the major uh, sport sporting leagues in America, you know, the NBA, NHL, uh, Tops, right? The, the old uh, collectible card. Uh, you know, baseball yeah. card companies, Upper Deck, have got. I believe they've all gotten into creating NFTs now. So you can uh, basically it's the same way that you would trade a physical card. Uh, 
now you can trade an NFT instead. And Digitally. a lot of people are doing that. Exactly. So you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of confidence that the firearms community, we will absolutely be getting into NFT firearms, you know, sooner probably rather than later. Um, it's, you know, right now, right, the, the utility is mostly around collectibles, right? Like you said, tri digital trading mm -hmm. cards, the uh, NBA Top Shot uh, brand, which has no relation to History Channel's <laughs> Top Shot. Ironic, the NBA yeah. Top Shot brand, yeah, ironic, but they've made $700 million, yeah. right, in NFT sales and, and trades over the past year. I mean, it's tremendous, right, the opportunity that we're talking about here. But as it relates to guns, you know, for me, the collectors, the digital collectors card is one very fun component. Mm -hmm. I used to collect baseball cards. Yeah. Fleer, Tops, Upper Deck. And it's just like so fun to see, you know, in 1987, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card and how the value, right, of that, that same card, but, you know, versus, you know, Tops versus Score versus, you know, another brand, right? It was just like such a fun experience, mm -hmm. right, that it, it, it enhances your community experience, right? And in our case, I think it would bring a lot of fun to the firearms community, bring literally a ton of value, right? We would be generating wealth for card owners, you know, for the community, for the industry, and, I uh, think. NFC firearms. And, and you could see this not just in, obviously, I mean, obviously there's the collectibles where you have like a picture of the, like a baseball card, type of deal, but, but with firearms instead, um, uh, which is one use, but I feel like there's an even bigger use out there that if you look at how NFTs have been used, um, for concerts or for, for, you know, bands that have put out, uh, albums, uh, you know, that, that feature an NFT components and basically you buy that NFT, uh, which could be a copy of the album, uh, cause you know, it's digital, so it could be music. Um, as well. And, and basically you can't, you can't copy an NFT. Like it, it, it has this essentially like a digital signature on it. So you could make the same image again, but it won't have that digital signature that authenticates it. Kind of like when you buy a baseball card from an authenticator that has like the provenance of how we know this is not fake or a copy. Right. Uh, and so people have, use that or bands have used that technology to, you know, you buy the NFT of the album, you also get a VIP ticket to the next concert in your town or whatever. And, and I feel like that's a way as well that it could be used perhaps by, by gun companies um, when they release a new gun or something. Is that, is that in line with what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that, that's going to be one of my uh, future Medium articles. My first article on Medium uh, was mostly focusing on digital collectibles and video games. But what you're talking about is a fantastic idea, right? And the, the concept here could be a firearms manufacturer publishes 100 NFTs of a new gun that they're coming out with. And those first, those, those 100 winners, they not only win the NFT, but it can it can buy them the right to purchase the new actual physical gun in mm -hmm. real life. So it's sort of like this Willy Wonka golden ticket dynamic where, you know, you're buying the candy bar and the, the, the ticket gets you a whole nother experience, but here you're buying the NFT and that digital asset could open up 
real life benefits and opportunities, which for me, I think that's just like, that's just so yeah. fun. That's so and exciting. Too, and I'm a technologist. Right, right. And the difference too, between like, because obviously they could sell you a gift card or something now, uh, but the NFT has that digital signature. So you can verify, anyone can verify because of the way the blockchain works, the whole concept behind it. Anyone exactly. can verify that that's the actual one and not just some sort of fake that's been made of it. That's that would be sort of the big exactly step forward in terms of the technology, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And and the big missing piece though at the moment is getting manufacturers, right, signed on to the concept and the notion that they should be selling NFT versions of their of their firearms. And you know, I'm actually in some conversations with some major you know firearms manufacturers and you know they're they're interested, but it's also a very uh new and to be frank it's it's kind of this foreign topic mm -hmm. right uh it took me personally i think when nfts started to hit you know mainstream media probably like late last year i watched with skepticism I'm like oh yeah. you know i think these are these are gonna be uh you know a fly-by-night kind of operation it sounds a little sounds a little weird right but man they're here to stay and and again back to you know, NBA Top Shot, you've got Beeple, which is an artist who sold his digital artwork for $69 million. Yeah. You've got the Charlie Bit My Finger YouTube, uh, that which turned into an NFT that sold for like $640,000. I mean, there's a real market for this. Mm -hmm. There's people who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on NFTs, and I just don't see any reason why the firearms industry and the firearms community wouldn't also want to come play in this extremely fun yeah, space. Yeah, and you've even seen uh, major uh, publishers get involved as well. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've, have, you've got the NBA and, and major companies like that involved, but you also have uh, the New York Times sold uh, an NFT of one of their front pages a while back for a significant amount of money. I think the Washington Post did the same thing. So you're seeing... Uh, USA Today yeah. and Time Magazine. You're seeing a as lot well. of people get into this this trend, and and I mean, I guess the concept here is like, oh well, because you can look at it and be like, well, this is just a JPEG of of whatever of the front page or of uh, this digital art. Um, you know, why is that valuable? But because it has that digital signature that guarantees to anyone who looks at it that it is the only, it is the original copy, and it is. Uh, has the provenance connected to it that can prove definitively that this is the real first copy of this uh, art. The analogy, valuable. yeah, the analogy that really helped concretize why NFTs are, are valuable is I think about the Mona Lisa, like the Mona Lisa in real right. life. There's only one copy of the Mona Lisa. Now, there's millions of visitors who go see the Mona Lisa every year, right? And we take pictures on our cell phones, right? Maybe you put it up, uh, you print copies out. You used to have the gift shops, right, who have, you know, copies of the Mona Lisa. But, but they're not as valuable as the actual single Mona mm -hmm. Lisa that, again, the provenance part that you've talked about, right? It's authenticated by the museum and by, right, museum curators. That's that's the value and back to the blockchain and that dig digital signature piece, right, that you mentioned. That's that's the key piece to where NFTs derive their value is mm -hmm. their rarity, the provenance. And uh, I, again, I just think it's, it's such an exciting concept that 
Uh, I'm doing everything I can to uh, promote this fun, cool new idea. Um, I've got some, you know, uh, ideas in the works myself, and I want to encourage other people, other you know, entrepreneurs to think about NFT firearms. Think about the blockchain, right? Because for me, uh, I, I would love to, uh, you know, maybe come on uh, again later yeah. when I've got some of these other ideas that I think would benefit the firearms community with respect to blockchain technology. Um, I think it could possibly, you know, be game changing. But it, it's about how do we do this together? It's 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 very much, um, you know, uh, the, for me, the, the the more fun that people have, right? That's sort of the whole point of life is like <laughs> let's have a good time, sure. right? And and the more people that are, are are having fun, whether it's with firearms in real life or firearms in the digital space, like that's great. And everybody can pick and choose like whichever, whichever, you know, kind of paradigm or paradigms that you want to play in. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to yeah, hopefully chatting more about this yeah. in the future. And, you know, cause I think it's easy to look at, uh, like some of the examples you cited of, uh, you know, some of the, some of these digital artists making out uh, hundreds of millions of dollars off, off of NFTs and, just dismiss it as like some crazy thing. Like, why would that be worth that much money? Especially if it's not even a physical, you know, medium, uh, that that's being represented. Uh, but then, you know, you, you can look at the regular art world, the physical art and say a lot of the same things, right? Like people do that all the time, right? You look at a lot, how some of these art pieces that are physical pieces of art, sell for and they're like blank canvas or well, black dot and, can't, and it's like <laughs> well, some, yeah, yeah and, you know, or, or like uh, you know uh there's plenty of art, art is completely subjective obviously so uh what gives it value is not determined by whether i like it or or you like it right it's what somebody's willing to pay for it and exactly uh, the same really the same basic rule applies here like it's valuable because people give it value like, yeah, I could make an NFT of nothing and uh, or we could do an NFT of the front page of the reload right now. And and, um, you know, it could sell for nothing, even though it's a one of a kind. Right. It's not just the scarcity angle. It's also, uh, you know, what gives art value uh, generally, because there's plenty of plenty of art that's physical art. You could buy for nothing, too. Uh, that's not really what where the value comes from. So. When that was, I think, what changed my mind about NFTs a while back is being more than just like some weird scam that's going on, right? Um, which you could also, again, is another thing that people say about the regular art world. Yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> you know, when I started thinking about my, in my own head, like the, the critiques I have of it, then I started to realize these are the same critiques that you could make about regular art or regular baseball card collecting or whatever that people put value into. Uh, so there really isn't anything inherently uh, flawed about NFTs or the blockchain. Um, you know, same thing with like crypto. You you can look at crypto and a lot of the smaller coins that exist out there, there's a lot of like fraud and pump and dump schemes that are around some of these coin, little like fake, basically scam coins that uh, nefarious people will create. But uh, uh, you know, you again, you can watch Wolf of Wall Street and see that that, is, that was not that's not unique to yeah. uh, crypto and that there is real value. Yeah. There. Scams and frauds. Yeah. Exactly. So, it's it's the same stuff happens in, in, the, in the crypto world as it does in right. the fiat currency. There's world. just a little it's bit less uh, regulation kind of, uh, over the crypto world right now. Um, mm -hmm. But 
but uh, yeah, I, so I, you know, to me, I think that there isn't any reason why something like what you're talking about couldn't become reality eventually. And probably, frankly, it kind of seems inevitable at this point that that it's some some point down the line you're going to see uh, and uh, the firearms industry involved in NFTs and crypto. That's that's exactly my perspective. This is so inevitable, and I am going to you know push, pull, and drag the <laughs> firearms industry into doing the inevitable. And it's like why there's there's just like literally no reason why why we shouldn't just jump into this yeah. today. It's it's very I would consider this very low risk. Like the technology is there to make this incredibly affordable for everybody. And again, I just think this is a really fun thing that's win, win, win across the board. So I hope NFT firearms has been a, an interesting uh, topic uh, for, for your listeners. I definitely <laughs> is for me. And thank you again for giving me the opportunity to come yeah. on the Reload and podcast. And so uh, if people want to find you, they want to get involved with uh, APAGOA, uh, they want to hear more about NFTs and firearms, how can they find you? Yeah, so uh, I'm available uh, on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, and YouTube. And my handle is at TopShotChris. I've also got a website, TopShotChris.com. And I've got a series of Medium posts. And my handle there is at TopShotChris as well. So Very if you want to read more about NFTs and blockchain stuff and guns, yeah, uh, come come follow me on Medium. I'm really excited for uh, for more posts that I'm going to be posting here in the uh, coming Great. weeks and, and months. And uh, APAGOA has a website as well? Yes. Yeah. Thanks for the <laughs> reminders. Yeah. Uh, APAGOA.org uh, is our website. It stands for Asian Pacific American Gun Owners Association. We've got a, uh, a number of uh, very fun events that are you know coming up uh, in the in the coming uh, months and quarters. Anyone who wants to volunteer, uh, you know, definitely please drop us a line as well. APAGOA. Great. All right. Well, we'll have to have you on again real soon. Thank you again for coming on with us. Great. Thanks again for having me. All right. We're here with John, who's a member of the Reload, uh, to do another one of my favorite segments here where we talk to some of the Reload uh, members and get their story and their background and and uh, learn a little bit more about our community here, uh, our growing community. <laughs> uh, so, John, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, a little bit about your background, where you're from? How'd you get into guns? Sure. So, uh, I guess I'm a little bit different than uh, your, probably your typical member. Uh, I'm actually... Uh, pretty left wing, or I was anyway, or still mostly am. Uh, I'm uh, I'm from New Jersey, so uh, behind behind enemy lines almost, <laughs> uh, as I found out. So um, well, I'm from I actually, Pennsylvania, so we're yeah. Actually, we're, I'm uh, I'm very I'm, I'm just outside of Philly. So oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That's, go birds. That's right where I grew up. So <laughs> go Eagles. Yeah, go birds. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I actually went. I'm I'm kind of used to changing my mind. I was I was actually raised in a very um, conservative uh, household. And over the years, um, I kind of became, uh, grew up, I became a political age during the Bush years, became far more liberal over time as I saw some, what I saw as contradictions in, in that, the sort of things I was raised in. And um, I still stayed mostly pro-gun pro until about like Sandy Hook uh, happened. And by then I was a parent. I have two young daughters. And I uh, also do a bit of uh, philosophy study as a as a hobby, and I I, I did notice that the uh, the arguments for gun control were or the the gun control arguments that are put out are not particularly very good at least the policies, and it kind of comes down to this: should we own guns or not own guns? 
question, right? Should mm -hmm. we have the Second Amendment? But that's almost never, never debated. But like you talk about assault weapon bans, that's not really going to do much. And then, um, so very liberal, anti-Trump, whole thing. And then the pandemic hit. And I had a whole bunch of crime happen right around my house. Mm. Um, the, the ATM I use, there was an armed robbery. There was a murder at a hotel right by my house. There was a, uh, there was all sorts of problems right in the neighborhood even. And everything, everything seemed to be going nuts. And I had gone shooting the year before with a friend for the first time ever. So I knew how to run a handgun. And I was like, I think we need to get, we need to get one of these. And because I live in New Jersey, it took forever. Mm. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was an extraordinarily uh, eye-opening and painful process that is designed to be painful and multiply redundant in ways to make it as painful as possible. Um, and I, you know, we have it, we made a self-defense plan, we have safe storage, all that kind of stuff. And I kind of got more and more into the arguments about, you know, pro anti-gun, uh, that sort of thing. And I found the reload. Uh, and I'm like a lot of, uh, when you're waiting for your gun permits to process, it, you can only go online and, and, and research things. And you find a lot of the pro-gun stuff is very, almost like gun rush Limbaugh. It's very, sure. very pro, yeah. very, very slanted in a specific direction. And um, the thing I really liked about what you've done is it seems very fair-minded. Uh, you'll, you'll go and, and give the pros and cons of everything. And so well, that's you. why I decided I wanted to join up. Yeah, I think that's where uh, we've tried to be a little bit different in the approach and, and, and focusing on obviously hard news over uh, over commentary. Uh, obviously, we do some analysis as well to try and, oh, yes. uh, you know, give give a better view of what's really going on. But but uh, yeah, I think there's not much of that, whether you're looking at uh, very pro gun outlets, which, you know, obviously have their place and their, their uh, opinion even heated strong opinions are are still valuable to to a certain degree but that's kind of all there is uh when when you look at a lot of gun media uh and then when you look at uh, a lot of mainstream media uh or major media outlets that are news focused or more news focused they tend to not be very uh informed on the issue uh, and they tend to lean in the other direction a lot of the time so uh, you know, that's that's where I, I thought the, the it was a good fit for the, the reload to try and do something a little bit different. But, I, you know, I find your story pretty fascinating because you're you're one of these one of the people who uh, who bought a gun just recently that we talked a lot about. Right. This is sort of really important new group of gun owners um, in some cases like yourself, uh, not traditional, you know, party line Republican voters, obviously, um, that, you know, might have different points of view on uh, lots of other issues than than uh, your traditional conservative gun owning gun voter. Uh, and, and so I think it's really fascinating to see uh, that kind of development, as you described, like how how you got into it. Um, obviously, there was rioting in Philly. There was there's been a rise in. Uh, it's been interesting, actually, the last two years here, because we've had a decline in a number of crimes like property crimes right mm -hmm. but a huge increase in in severe crimes like murder yeah uh murder was up 30 percent in 2020 which is the biggest spike yeah uh, so percentage wise in history like it's still it's still relative to the 1990s or late 80s still relatively low levels but they've increased a lot in recent years and and it seems like it's driven a lot of people to buy guns and and i mean here you are it's one of the prime examples of that 
Yeah. Uh, one of the things, especially uh, the thing I really loved, actually, that really got me sucked into listening to your podcast every week. Uh, you had David French on mm. to talk about the New York uh, State Rifle Association versus Bruin case, which I am intensely um, interested in. Yeah, that could have big impacts in New Jersey. I cannot carry uh, my firearm. And I have been uh, as a new gun owner. One thing I learned is train. Um, and so I've taken quite a lot of training classes. Um, I took a private lesson to learn how to use a holster um, in the hope that we will eventually next year get rights to be able to carry. Um, and like the analysis you guys did about, OK, they will hopefully likely make sh make all the, the last eight states become shall issue. So the state must issue permits, but then get ready. They will make it as hard as possible like they do just yeah. to buy a gun. So. Yeah, I think that's probably the the most likely outcome. I mean, obviously, we talked about a, a range of what could happen. Yes, but uh, yeah, most likely they'll probably strike down the issue that has you know where states like New Jersey and New York and Maryland and California have these systems that give uh, extraordinary discretion to government officials on whether or not somebody can obtain a, a concealed carry license. Uh, Based on extraordinary the, discretion is a very <laughs> correct way to put it, or, or yeah. politically correct way to put it. It's de facto ban unless you're That's exceedingly true, yes. wealthy or a retired police officer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> those systems breed a, a type of corruption, too. That's very common where the people in charge of issuing permits generally don't issue any permits unless uh, you are connected <laughs> in some way or you can bribe them. In, in many cases, you've seen that in New yep. York City and in California and New Jersey. Uh, over and over again, this has happened. So, um, yes, yeah, certainly uh, the the current system, because of the basically, it's left up to the opinion of the the issuing you know official as to whether or not the applicant has a good reason to carry <laughs> a gun for self defense. Um, and so, when you give someone that kind of discretion over uh, a people's ability to protect themselves with firearms. Uh, that tends to provide a lot of incentive for people to try and bribe those officials. And uh, I know this, this might be shocking to some, but uh, public officials, um, they, they aren't always the most upstanding people and uh, may be vulnerable to these kinds of bribes uh, and certainly have been in many cases in the past. It, you know, the one the one thing I like to point out, especially to other liberals, when I just debate, I've gotten into a lot of debates about this because I've been a little public about it. And um, they say, well, you know who had a, a carry permit in New York City mm -hmm. when he was a Democrat uh, giving money to anti-gun politicians for years yep. was Donald Trump and his sons. That's and correct. people like Howard Stern and all the New York, uh, the, the celebrities and very wealthy people who you might not have even ever heard of if you didn't live there, uh, all have carry permits. That's right. And yeah. So there's, a guy there's... like me who's passed, you know, to get a gun, I had to pass three background checks mm -hmm. to buy a pistol. Yeah. I've been a law abiding citizen all my life. There is no chance <laughs> for me to get yep. a carry permit. Yeah, effectively, that's the case in, in New Jersey and most of these states with may issue laws. And, and of course, a lot of these states have uh, permit requirements on simply purchasing uh, firearms. Uh, in New Jersey, there's a permit requirement for purchasing a handgun. And that system itself uh, can also become very, diff uh, very backed up and difficult to get through. I know during the pandemic, uh, they shut down a lot of that process. 
And I, I did uh, reporting when I was at the Free Beacon uh, on some of the people who got caught in that. And they had yep. to wait for months, yep. months and months and months and months to get uh, their pistol permit uh, approval. And, and that was in the middle of, you know, all the turmoil we experienced in 2020, whether it was uh, the meat shortages, the runs on, you know, toilet, toilet paper, paper yeah. at the store, uh, the, you know, early release of, of uh, you know, certain convicts from, from jail, the uh, police officers getting sick, you know, the list goes on and on. And obviously the rioting that happened uh, near where you live in Philadelphia area and throughout the country. Um, and so, you know, the, the system is uh, very restrictive in, in places like New Jersey and New York to the point where it's extremely difficult for a regular person to obtain a handgun in the first place, even, even with, you know, the Heller ruling that says it's protected by the Second Amendment, you can still put a lot of uh, sort of hurdles on that path to legal gun ownership. Um, and that uh, and then they obviously have essentially the biggest hurdle of all in May issue when it comes to carrying your gun. Uh, and then, like, you know, like I discussed, discussed with David French on one of the previous podcasts that you alluded to here, um, that's probably what is going to happen if and when the Supreme Court strikes down May issue laws. They'll probably just create a new regime of very complicated uh, processes to, to obtain a permit. D.C. has already done this. Yep. Effectively. Uh, now, it's it's certainly possible to get through that process. They do issue permits. They've in fact, they've increased how many permits they've issued over the last uh, two years by a huge percentage. There was a report about that just the other day. But, you know, it, it, they're still going to make it difficult. And yep. um, and yeah, but we'll have to see exactly what what comes of that case. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. And just talking to us a little bit about your point of view, I, I always like to hear from the members and, and hear from the variety uh, of points of view that, that we have in, in this new uh, community here of, of people uh, who've subscribed uh, to the Reload. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time just to to give us a little bit of insight into your your own thinking. No, uh, thank you for having me on. It was it's a pleasure. Absolutely. And we'll do this again with another member uh, soon. If you're a member who wants to uh, come on the podcast and talk to us, do a little interview, just reach out to me, reply to your uh, Sunday newsletter uh, saying you want to be on and, and we'll make time to have you on uh, and, and have a nice discussion. I think this has been one of my favorite segments so far on the podcast. So I really enjoy it. But all right. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's all we've got for this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Join us again next week when our guest will be Adam Serwer of The Atlantic. And I think we'll have a really good, interesting conversation with him. If you want to get this podcast a day early and get exclusive access to other Reload pieces, especially the analysis pieces where I give my uh, take on every news story that I can, uh, hopefully it's interesting. I think people enjoy it. <laughs> um, make sure you sign up for a membership today over at thereload.com. But until next time, thank you. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run 
I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever my own.